0: We are in the midst of uh, in week, chapter, week number 9 of walking through the book of Exodus. And we are going to be looking at Exodus chapter 7. And this is the part that we start becoming really familiar with. Uh, this is where we start seeing all the plagues kind of unfold and we see God doing some amazing things and we start wondering, how in the world does this all work out? This morning, we, we get to see how God deals with Pharaoh and his people. Starting at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their canals over the, and their ponds and all their pools of waters so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the waters in the Nile, and all the waters in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the lord had said pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take take did not take even this to heart and all the egyptians dug along the nile for water to drink for they did not could not drink the water of the nile 7 days passed after the lord struck the nile Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up to your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into the ovens and your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you in the houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in their houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They gathered them into, together in, in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is by the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the lord had said then the lord said to moses rise up early in the morning and present yourself to pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him thus says the lord let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go behold i will send swarms of flies and your servants and your on your servants and on your people on on you, on your servants and your people, and into your houses, that the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen and the lord did so there came great swarms of flies into the house of pharaoh and unto the servants houses throughout all the land of egypt the land was ruined by the swarms of flies then pharaoh called moses and aaron and said go sacrifice to your god within the land But Moses says it would not be right to do so for the offerings we sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses says, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead before the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from the people tomorrow. Not only let not Pharaoh cheat again by letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But the Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in January, we are going to come to probably one of the most familiar sections of Scripture, and that is going to be Exodus chapter 20. Does anybody, without cheating, going ahead, remember we're in church, does anybody know what is in Exodus chapter 20? Very good, very good. Sunday school did some of you well, or just reading Scripture, but do you remember what the first commandment is? You shall have no other... Are you cheating? Good. Good. You shall have no other gods before you. It is not only the first commandment in order, it is also the first in priority. It's listed first for a reason. In fact, all the other commandments are really just a reflection of that first commandment. To have no other gods before our God says that God has an exclusive place of prominence and obedience. God is first among all other gods. That means that there is no one greater, no one more important, no one more worthy of worship than Him and Him alone. It means that there is no one greater than our God. No other gods before me. That's the first commandment. But do you know what God said before he gave this exclusive decree? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, or some of you may know, out of the house of bondage. I am that God who delivered you. God claimed exclusive obedience from his people based upon what had previously taken place in Egypt. And what happened in Egypt God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them. He took them out. He transplanted them from Egypt, out of Egypt. He brought them out, and this was the exodus from Egypt, and it was God who made it happen. So in Exodus chapters 1 through 6, we learn that it was God who hears. The cry from his own people reached his ears. He heard their groaning. He saw their misery. And he knew what was happening to them. And in Exodus 7-12, through 12, we see another picture. Not only do we worship a God who hears us, whose heart is broken with our cries, but we also see a God who delivers his people. And this concept of rescuing people from hopeless Hopeless oppression will become the basis of the New Testament concept of redemption through Jesus Christ. But we also have learned in our past weeks that the way that God delivers is very important. He doesn't just deliver. He just doesn't pluck people up. He does it through judgment. In other words, God simultaneously rescues people and brings justice to the situation. He redeems people by defeating His enemies. He delivers people by force and shows the world that He is the Lord and there is no other like Him. The ten plagues are the judgment through which God delivers His people. God turns the natural elements of Egypt Against the Egyptians, and while at the same time demonstrating that their gods are allegedly connected to who are allegedly connected to these elements, can do nothing about it. God judges Egypt using their own gods to free His people. He delivers through judgment. So when God says, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt," you shall have no. Other gods before me. No other gods before me. He's not just talking about deliverance. The Egyptians saw what he did to the Egyptian gods. Pharaoh and to the entire Egyptian army. God has the right to declare. Unilaterally. Across the board. That there are to be no other gods. No other gods before him. He has proven in their deliverance. That he is Supreme. Supreme. And I want you to think this morning about supremacy. The supremacy of God in your life. Honestly. Is this a doctrine that you totally embrace with the totality of your life? That God is supreme over all things. He's supreme over, over nature. He's supreme over your relationships. He's supreme over your children. He's supreme over your salvation. God has his way and deserves to be worshiped because of that. We're going to unpack this a little bit later because we have to, before we can really understand the supremacy of God, we've got to be able to understand the idolatry that takes place in our life. So the vehicle that God, by which God will definitely, definitively declare that he is to have no other rival is through the ten plagues. He will also use the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but the ten plagues will send an absolute clear message to Pharaoh and all of Egypt and even Israel that he is to be supreme and to, he is supreme over all the Egyptian culture. Hopefully you remember from last week or your understanding of Scripture that the Egyptians attributed most of their national success to the gods that they worshipped. And these gods were connected to natural elements. Egypt, like most other nations, including our nation, honestly, is polytheistic. We worship many different gods. We want to admit it or not. We are polytheistic. In other words, the Egyptians believed that the universe was controlled by another world which involved multiple gods who controlled the various aspects of nature. Some, sometime in your middle school upbringing, you probably studied the Greeks and their whole pantheon of gods, where there was a connection between the mortals and the immortals. Well, Egypt was similar in its understanding of the universe. And many of the ten plagues deal with an Egyptian god directly, but not also closely connected. The ten plagues have have to be seen as a total picture. Not just this plague and that plague, but a a total picture sending a message to Pharaoh in Egypt that there is one true God, and that one true God must be obeyed. And each plague builds upon the others in order to bring Egypt and Pharaoh to their knees in humble submission and obedience to God. And God is going to deliver them through this judgment by means of these plagues. So we come to the first plague, the Nile River. And if you remember or know anything about the Nile River, it is central to the whole life of Egypt. It is their source of economy. That when the, the... the Nile would flow, banks would flow over into, overflow its banks. It would deposit all this rich, rich soil in the land all around it. And because of that, because of all this rich soil, Egypt was rich. Its, its crops were just tremendous. And having grown up in Iowa, I, I know about the river bottoms. The river bottoms, though, they are dangerous because you never know when they're going to overflow. They had the best soil ever. The best soil. So Egypt loved, loved, adored, and worshipped the Nile. And most of the people of Egypt worshipped the Nile as a god. The god Hapai. And there was some evidence that the Nile was called Hapai. The river god. And every year when it overflowed, it would deposit this rich silt, allowing for great crops to happen. And without the Nile, these would have starved to death. And the, the annual cycle of flooding became a basis for the Egyptian calendar. Their whole world revolved around this river. Hapai was associated with water, with life, and fertility. And he was considered a caring god who helped maintain order in the universe. They could count on this God to care for them. Therefore, what was about to happen to the Nile was a direct frontal assault to the very heart of Egypt and their understanding of their gods. We also need to remember the role that the Nile took place in Exodus chapter 2. If you remember, Israel became a threat An internal threat. And Pharaoh started commanding that the midwives kill these firstborn children. And when the midwives refused to kill the firstborn children, he gave a decree, a a decree to the whole land of Egypt that if there is a young boy, you are to throw him where? Into the Nile River. So by using the, the Nile River as a vehicle of death, Pharaoh was playing on all the spiritual sentiments of his people to enact targeted genocide as well don't forget that moses was hidden in a basket in the nile and that his name means i drew him out of the water so these waters of judgment god drew him out so attacking the nile is not only about attacking the gods of the egyptians but it's also about retribution for terrible atrocities The plague affecting the Nile had meaning on multiple levels. But did you notice how it just starts out in verse 14? It begins with another reference to Pharaoh's heart and its hardness. Even though he had refused the first sign, the swallowing of the snake, he refused to listen to the Lord, what the Lord had told him to do. Verse 14 makes it clear. He refuses to let the people go. Therefore, God said, hey, in the morning as Pharaoh is doing his his spiritual exercises at the river, appeasing the god HaPai and and saying a prayer over this river, address him. And God gives him very clear instructions as to what they are to say. And this is the first time, the many times that we are going to hear it and in a similar tone. The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to, to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me and worship me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. It's kind of a, a good commentary. God says this, but so far you have not obeyed. You have a very hard heart. And Moses clearly identifies the conflict. The I am, the Lord, has told Pharaoh to let the people go. But the conflict is, he has not obeyed. He's not obedient. So there's going to become some consequences to this. By this you shall know that I'm the Lord. And how will you know? The entire river system and all your water is going to turn to blood, right? God is going to strike Egypt for seven consecutive days with bloody water. The precious life-giving river will become absolutely useless and even disgusting to them. It will not just be the main river, because this plague is going to be comprehensive on their rivers, on their canals, on their ponds, on their pools of water, and even on their vessels made of wood and their vessels of stone. So anything that will have water on it will become bloody. The water from the Nile will be contaminated no matter where it is going to be stored. And verse 20 indicates that while Moses and Aaron were in Pharaoh's presence, they struck the Nile and it immediately turned to blood. What does this even mean? Is this just one of these these kind of movie things where you see this this gray-bearded man in those bad old films striking the Nile and all of a sudden you see this ripple effect? Is that that how it really worked out? What, What do we have in our head? Did it really turn to blood or is it just kind of this red substance? What really happened? Well, scholars, biblical scholars, have long debated the historicity of the plagues in Egypt. Some claim that they never happened in all, at all, that they were just merely some, some sort of symbolic literary inventions, some just good stories. Others have tried to find some naturalistic explanation for all these plagues. In the case of the first plague, it's some. It's sometimes suggested that the river did not actually turn into blood, but merely resembled blood. Perhaps heavy rains in the southern Egypt washed red soil into the Nile Delta. So maybe that caused the river to look red. Perhaps the river was red because the sediment was from seasonal flooding, and the sediment led to oxygen imbalance, which led to... The, the river's stench. Or perhaps the Nile was covered with a bloom of reddish algae or inundated with microorganisms. All these are possibilities that scholars have looked at. Whatever the explanation, some of the scholars admit that the plague was nevertheless an act of God. God judged Egypt by overruling his creation. Using natural disasters to show his Supernatural power. There are several difficulties with the naturalistic explanations. I'm not going to go into them all. The real problem is trying to explain away a miracle. However, that a merely natural phenomenon would not have accomplished God's purpose, which was to that He was the Lord. If the Nile turned to blood every time there was a downpour downriver, the sign would have been meaningless. They would have gone, are you serious? You're, this is going to be your sign from your almighty God. This Every time it rains. This does not matter. Ma- Pharaoh wouldn't have even bothered to call his magicians. He would have said, big deal Moses, this happens all the time. For all these reasons, it's hard to believe and teach naturalistic explanations are good. Instead, we have got to believe and teach that the river actually turned to blood. That it was real. It was a divine miracle. A supernatural demonstration that the Lord is God. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard, right? And he wouldn't listen, as the Lord said. He just turned and went back to his house. And he did not even take to heart that talks about the hardness the entire river turned to blood everywhere therefore in order to in order for the water to be secured the people had to dig dig deep for groundwater the nile river was entirely contaminated for seven days God levied His first blow against the Egyptians. The worship of the Nile River, their use of the Nile to kill the Hebrew children, their dependence on the Nile for life of their nation all converged in one plague. Their love for the Nile had now been directly challenged. And without giving the rest of the story away, don't miss the significance that eventually Pharaoh and his entire army will be drowned in the Red Sea. Their love and worship of water used against them in stunning ways. Deliverance through judgment has just begun. Because next, chapter 8 records a second plague. It's meant to build on the first. God issues another warning. Listen, let my people go or you are going to be covered with frogs. And did you notice how bad they were going to be? Everywhere. In your beds in your kneading bowls, in your ovens, everywhere. There were going frogs everywhere. And this was an attack on the Egyptian goddess Hekwet, who who, connected to, who was connected to life, fertility, and especially childbirth. Some commentaries see this as just another statement in light of the command for the, the midwives to kill the children because the midwives would wear amulets with the goddess Heqet. So further in Egyptian mythology, she was thought to be the wife of another god who was considered the lord of the created things. So this goddess could not even control these frogs. The god of the Hebrews controls the symbol of fertility. And this god is going to make the Egyptians despise how many frogs they have in their land. They're going to be in bedrooms, in your bed, in your houses of your servants, in your people, in your ovens, in your kneading boards. They shall come up on you. If you have any freaking out about things on you, these frogs are going to be on you and on your people and on all your servants. It was mass chaos. Frogs were everywhere. Even though Pharaoh's Egyptians were able to replicate this plague, They could not stop the frogs. And this was a theme that you'll see in the remaining plagues. The plagues start and stop at the command of God. Again, Pharaoh makes a statement and gives a false sense of his heart. Just just make them stop. When would you like them to stop? How about tomorrow? And sure enough, Pharaoh's wish was granted. Tomorrow, it will be stopped. But Pharaoh was not willing to give it up. Then came the third one. The third plague came without warning and without a meaning. Plagues six and nine will follow the same pattern. A sudden devastation without any kind of of announcement. The plague of gnats was the least amount of material has the least amount of material of all the plagues, and it along with all the plague of the flies did not target any specific deity. However, the Egyptian worldview just enjoyed ecological harmony. And they viewed order from chaos as a vital part of their cosmic order. The God of the Hebrew continues to make it clear that He alone is the one who can control all natural elements. He can stop and start... Any kind of disaster at his will. And so what happened in verses 16 and 17? Aaron struck the ground. And gnats swarmed the land. Even though this is a short section, this one gives me the heebie-jeebies. Because the word gnat could also refer to mosquitoes, lice, or gnats themselves. The whole, did, did you hear? Whether, whether it's mosquito, night lice, or gnats, something is constantly around your face. And I don't know if you've noticed it with the wetness of our area, how bad the gnats are. Nothing compared to this. These things are all over the place. It's annoying. They're they're around your face. They're in your ears. They're in your nose. They're crawling down your neck. It's annoying. No matter what kind of critter it is, it's all over. But these magicians were not able to recreate this plague. They weren't able to do so. So what did they do? They said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can do nothing about this. This is an act of God Himself. The box is getting tighter and tighter and tighter around the ruler of Egypt. And even his own magicians using secret arts are telling him that the God of, he, of the Hebrews is behind this one. And Pharaoh's heart is not any different. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord said. As with the first cycle. His heart was hardened. And Egypt continues to experience it. God's judgment. The last, the last one is the flies. And this plague does not target again the, the particular gods of the Egyptians. There are other purposes here. Once again, Moses is told to, be, to present himself to Pharaoh and, and as he is going out of the water, Give him these words. And Pharaoh is, again, is told to let the people go and is given a warning. But now in verses 22 and 23, God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. This is the first time that God has separated Israel, my people, from the plagues that are affected from all of Egypt, your people. Except for the plague of the locusts, all the remaining plagues are directed at Egypt while Israel is protected And you will see two ultimate examples of this in the death of the firstborn and the parting of the Red Sea. God protects His people and punishes Egypt. But we see a new development here in verses 25 to 32. Pharaoh begins to try to find ways to appease God's wrath without embracing full obedience. We kind of do that, don't we? We, we, we like to kind of appease God in one way, but not fully embracing obedience. There's words to describe that kind of obedience that are not appropriate for church. But we do it all the time. Half obedience. We're, we're going to give God partial allegiance, partial care, partial worship. And Pharaoh tries to convince Moses and Aaron to sacrifice to their God, while just remaining in the land. Uh, How about we meet 50-50 here? Part of the way. And then he tells them that the people can go, but they can't go very far. Partial obedience. It may have been that he was planning on chasing them down and bringing them back eventually like he did at the Red Sea. But finally, Moses warned Pharaoh not to cheat again by not letting the people go. Once again... Moses prayed to the Lord and once again the plague was removed and once again Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The Hebrew word here kind of refers to a bit of exasperation. Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Half-hearted obedience was just a slow walk toward outward rebellion. Half-hearted obedience is just a slow walk toward outward disobedience. And despite the now becoming putrid, the smell of dead frogs, the annoying gnats everywhere, the flies that selectively ruined Egypt while sparing Israel, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. The lesson that God wants to teach us and Egypt and Israel is the same. He wants us to know that He is the Lord and there is no other. In Israel's case, this lesson through the plagues resulted in their deliverance. For Egypt, it led to judgment. And for Pharaoh, it led to death. The God of the universe has no other rivals. And He must be obeyed because He is God. He is full of love. He is full of mercy. He is full of grace. He is full of redemption. But He is exclusively full of all these things good things and any attempt to get these things from anything else is not only foolish it is dangerous you and i all the time set up false gods or idols all the time you might not have a little shrine in your house Where you got a God, and you know, you you might not light your little incense burning every morning and say prayers to a stone idol, but we all set up gods in an attempt to control our lives. They set up these false counterfeit gods in order to give themselves what they wanted. But loving and trusting and obeying these false gods never, ever, ever works. False gods. Soon become self destructive. Listen to what Psalm 115 said. Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Then idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses do not smell. They have hands but they do not feel, feet but do not walk. They, they make no sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The idol of your heart. The idol of your heart always turns on you. Always. That's a guarantee. What you thought was you were controlling, begins controlling you. And I want you to think about this really raw, in a raw way right now. What is it that you worship and enjoy and you want to have and you're doing whatever you can Because I'm going to tell you, those gods become the means of your own destruction. This is what happened to Egypt. And it is what will happen to any of us when we pursue our counterfeit gods. You probably don't think of yourself as an idol worshiper. You're not that kind of a primitive person who just wears grass skirts and nothing up on top. You're not that kind of a primitive person. But that's because your definition is far too narrow. Tim Keller. In his excellent book called Counterfeit Gods, highly recommend it. Pick it up, read it, go through it. He helps us expand our understanding of idolatry. This is what he says. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your, your life would feel hardly worth living. He goes on to say, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. And then I'll know I have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. But there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. The fundamental issue at play with idolatry, regardless of the object or the person, is whether the thing that we love, trust, and obey is truly worthy of our affection. The biblical answer is that nothing is worthy of love, trust, and obedience except God. People are consumed, we are consumed by our idols, like Pharaoh. They ruin their lives, ruin our lives, and despite the obvious obvious truth in front of them, they aren't worth it. A person can be consumed with a career making money, achievement, saving face, social standing, a perfect family. I know we're in the Lincoln Way area, so hopefully that's hidden somewhere. Idolatry of a perfect family, a romantic relationship, beauty, intelligence, sex, Power, control, happiness. Even happiness can be idolatry. But all these counterfeit gods drive us into the ground as we try to appease them. False gods are destructive. Period. And this sounds hopeless, doesn't it? Because we're, we're all idolaters. I want you to be, admit it. There should be an amen. We're all idolaters, aren't we? <laughs> right so what do we do tomorrow what do we do in 15 20 minutes or in a half an hour when we leave this place what do we do how do we where is there hope is there any hope because we are all prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love we all have this desire to kind of be sucked into the vortex of fa- false worship of these these gods no matter what it is the book of Exodus is designed to show you the glorious power of the true God. The God who hears, but also the God who delivers. This is the good news. This is the Gospel. He not only hears you, He is going to deliver you. He is capable to deliver you. This book, and especially in the 10 plague section, shows us that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. He is supreme over all rivals, over all other false gods. And if you trust Him with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, all that you can muster, if you trust Him and believe in Him by faith, you will be spared from judgment. Spared. Disobey Him and follow your own path and your counterfeit God will consume you. You see, the beauty of the message of the Bible is that the Creator made deliverance possible. God delivered His people through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. His death became the means by which reconciliation, forgiveness, and deliverance is possible. He rescues His people from their slavery to false gods but hear me clearly in order for someone to be delivered to be truly saved to be plucked out he or she must be must come to the conclusion that god is right must come to the conclusion that god is right when he says when you by saying i am a sinner and I cannot save myself. There's nothing that I can do because I'm hopeless. I'm tied to this slavery, to this bondage. I need a Redeemer. I need to, by faith, put my trust in the One who can save me. And that and that alone, that person is only Jesus Christ. In other words, the first step towards freedom is realizing that God is God and running to Him for mercy. I'll close with this quote from Tim Keller. The living God who revealed Himself both on Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only God who, if you can find Him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail Him, can truly forgive you. That is my God. And that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the children of Israel, and the God of Missio Dei Church. There is none like him. Amen? Let's pray.